This is Scott Eblen, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? So I'm Scott Eblen, and I'm an executive coach and a leadership educator. I'm also the author of The Next Level, What Insiders Know About Executive Success. And I guess in terms of what I do, I I sort of described it with each of those three things. Uh, I've been an executive coach for about 12 years now. I've followed about a 15-year career as a a corporate uh, manager and executive in different industries and sectors. Um, And I'm also a leadership educator. I do a lot of speaking uh, related to the content of my book, The Next Level, and and other topics. Um, Do a lot of workshops, uh, corporate university kind of programs, for leaders who are considering what kinds of results they have to get or what's expected of them in terms of different results when they either take on a new and bigger job as a result of a promotion or they're maybe in the same job but the scope just got a lot bigger because the competitive environment has changed or the organization has downsized or just something has changed. And what's always true when things change is different results are expected. And what's always true when different results are expected is that you probably have to do some things differently. So the big question that I'm posing for folks is what do you need to pick up and what do you need to let go of to get the different results that are expected? So a lot of writing about that, both in the book and on my blog at eplingroup.com and other places. Um, and a lot of education around that through different channels, uh, online and offline. And and uh, you know I see that in your in your blog, which I'm a huge a huge fan of, and a, I guess a devoted follower of. Um, and a, and a lot of what you do. And I guess my question is now we're in the we're in the second edition of the book, uh, which is really cool. That that to me is the the real way to know that it's having an impact. But I, I guess the question is why why get into book writing? You're, you're doing it so well from a coaching. Um, and blog and speaking. Why? What inspired you to sit down and really write it all out as a book? You want to know the real story? <laughs> no, well, I mean, yeah. if you want to tell the fake story, we can listen you know, to that yeah, one. Yeah, we can do that one too. But the, the real story is probably maybe more interesting. Uh, you mentioned uh, before we went uh, on the air here, uh, Marshall Goldsmith had been a guest of yours. And I, as I said, I've been coaching for about 12 years. That That was after you know, 15-year career as a, as a manager and executive myself. And coaching for me was all the stuff that I loved about corporate life and none of the stuff that I didn't love about corporate life. And it was a, a great way to get, you know, kind of focus on what I thought was my sweet spot or what were my sweet spots. And uh, Marshall, back in those days, had a, had a group called the Alliance for Strategic Leadership in the early 2000s. And I was a a member of that uh, in its in its last days, sort of the last year of its existence, I joined, and he had a big meeting out in California uh, for about a hundred people that were members of A4SL, and I was, you know, comparatively speaking, you know, back in December of 2003, I was a rookie coach, you know, compared to the people that were in the room. I mean, they were very experienced, very well-known coaches for the most part. And then there's me, you know, (laughs) I'm kind of sitting there thinking, okay, what am I contributing to this? And so I I spent a lot of time listening that weekend, which was probably a good thing to do. And every time Marshall got up uh, in front of the room that weekend, he said, you know, everybody here needs to be thinking, what book are you going to write? Because that's how you make your mark in this industry. That's how you share what you have to share, you know, beyond 
just the one-on-one coaching. You know, you need to be thinking about how you share your message and get it out there. So I thought all weekend, honestly, about, okay, if I've got to write a book, what book am I going to write? And the old thing about write what you know. Uh, I had been through a number of challenging transitions in my 15-year career prior to coaching. And, you know, what I found is that you get a promotion or you enter a new job at a new organization and, you know, okay, congratulations, you're the new vice president or the new senior vice president or whatever, and go go to it, go at it. And it's like, well, what do I do? Well, you know, you'll figure it out. And what I learned in my own career, especially once I started coaching people in my own career prior to coaching, going into the field of coaching, but just coaching people in, in corporate America as a member of corporate America and seeing the patterns that were going on there. And then when I started coaching from an external perspective, the patterns that I noticed were people really trying to figure it, figure it out. You know, and there were all these really high expectations for people moving into these bigger roles, but those expectations were very rarely clearly defined. And I started seeing some common denominators, you know, in those situations. And so I, I sort of had a theory of the case, you know, going into the idea for the book about what those common denominators were, and a lot of those, you know, ended up in the final book. But also, you know, I really wanted to expand my research, you know, base beyond just my own direct observation and experience. So I interviewed several dozen, you know, very successful seasoned executives, and my question for them was if you were coaching somebody who was hitting a next-level situation, like particularly, you know, new member of the executive team for the first time in their career, what would you encourage them to pick up and what would you encourage them to let go? And I, I learned a lot in that. And, and one of the things that I became pretty good at re- relatively quickly in, in the field of coaching was doing feedback reports and interviewing, you know, colleagues of my clients to, you know, what should they keep doing, start doing, stop doing, you know, kind of interviews. And I was good at pulling out the themes or the headlines from all of those different conversations and summarizing them in a way that really made sense to my clients. So, you know, the way I thought about the next level was this is just a big, huge feedback report. And instead of for a particular person, it's for a lot of people who are in similar situations. And, um, you know, I just sorted through all those interviews and, Okay, what are the themes they're telling me? And and the pick up and the let go question seem to be a little bit more on point than the standard keep, start, stop doing kind of question because pick up and let go was more about transition, you know. And and it turns out that was a that was a pretty good aha. I, I think the the book is to you know whatever degree it's been successful. I think that's a big reason why uh, is it is that pick up and let go question really resonates with people. And uh, especially the letting go part, because they understand that that's usually where they get stuck. And letting go for literally 98% of the people I talk to, I check this regularly, for 98% of the people I talk to, letting go is much more challenging and difficult than picking up. Oh, no, and I I love... long answer to your question. (laughs) No, it's a great answer. I I love the... um... That's right. I love the structure of pick up and let go. I um, and if it's okay, what I'd like to do is pull out some of the ones that stood out to me and just kind of have you talk about the ideas behind them and how how leaders can can uh, use them. Yeah, it'd be great. So that's all right. Let's do that. Okay. So 
The first one that really um, stood out to me was this idea of uh, pick up defining what to do and let go of telling how to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of how the what to do versus how to do it distinction is, is an important one. But talk a little bit about that. Okay, sure. I'm happy to. Let me kind of put it in the context of of the other eight pick up and let go distinctions in the book just quickly at the, at the outset. Uh, just for background for folks that aren't familiar with the book, it's organized around a model. I won't say it's the model for sure, but it's a model of leadership presence. And the way I think about leadership presence is I break it down into three big categories. There's personal presence, which is all about how you view yourself and how others view you. There's team presence, which is all about how you lead and leverage whatever team or teams it is that you're responsible for as a, as a leader. And finally, there's organizational presence, because just about every leader is not just a leader of their team. They're a leader in the broader organization, and they have an impact sort of outside their swim lanes. Whether they're aware of it or not, they do. And it's, you know, obviously, it's better to be aware of that. And so within each of those three categories, personal, team, and organizational, uh, there are sets of behaviors, uh, three sets of behaviors in each of those categories that leaders either need to pick up on the one hand or let go on the other. So the first set of behaviors in the team presence category is the one that you asked about. Uh, Actually, it's the second one in the team presence category. Pick up defining what to do and let go of telling how to do it. And it it relates to a big idea that kind of cuts across the three chapters in the book that relate to team presence. And here's the thing is most of my observation over the last, six years or so of talking with people about this and coaching around this content is that most of the leaders that end up in next level kinds of situations are folks who for most of their career uh, right up until present day either think of themselves and or others think of them as the go-to person. And, you know, being a go-to person is actually kind of a, a good thing, right? I mean, it's it's what gets you noticed. You're known for getting results, you know, kind of whatever it takes within, you know, the bounds of ethics and legality, going to get it done. And so being a go-to person is a great thing until it's no longer a great thing. And when it's no longer a great thing is when the scope of what's expected of you in terms of those new results becomes so broad that you can't operate that way anymore. You can't actually touch everything yourself like you have been used to doing. You can't do your own personal quality control on everything that comes out of your shop. And so they've got to make the shift from being go-to people to to folks who create teams of go-to people, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's like, how do I create more people like me, you know, or like I have been, you know, people that get stuff done. And so that one of the big ways you do that is to let go of being wedded toward, uh, to your way of how to do things. Uh, you know, it's you know, like my way is the best way. And, and it, you got to let go of that because it, it's, it constrains. It's a bottleneck kind of constraint if everything's got to run through you on the how or if you've got to be the coach or the teacher or the mentor or the director or whatever to tell other people how to do it. Instead, focus on here's what we're trying to do. You know, let, you know, let me define what to do. One of the people that I heard about in the book, I didn't interview him directly, but other people that worked with him quoted him on this. It's a guy named Bob Pittman who's been all over the place. He was one of the original founders of MTV. He was a number two exec at AOL back in the heyday of AOL before things kind of went south there. Um, 
he's done a bunch of other places. I can't remember where he is now, but he's doing something really cool. And Pittman, when he was the chief operating officer officer at AOL, used to start every meeting by every senior staff meeting saying to his colleagues, remember, guys and gals, we're the keepers of the what, not the masters of the how. You know, our job is to define what the outcome is and let all these smart people that are working for us figure out how. You know, it's it's you know in the, in the military they call it commander's intent. You know, the 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 major or the colonel is going to say, okay, here's what the objective is. You know, for this mission, whatever it is, and you make sure everybody's really clear on what success looks like if that mission is accomplished, and then from there, the troops have latitude. You know, to come up with their own version of how. Um, I'll stop and take a breath and see if you've got any follow-up questions based on what I just said. Oh no, I, I think it's a great. Um, it's a uh, using commander's intent is a great analogy. We were talking offline right before we started recording about this idea of no plan survives initial contact to the enemy, or or Mike Tyson's Mike Tyson's version. Everybody's got a plan until they get hit. And again, if you're teaching people, if you're telling people exactly uh, like how to do everything, when the plan stops working, they come right back to you. But if you tell them what you need to do, what commander's intent is, and leave them free to to work around it, then they don't need you to accomplish the goal if the plan doesn't match, uh, you know, what you would, what was envisioned. Oh, that's exactly, I mean, it's how they grow too, right? I mean, that's how you develop other people is to let them figure it out. One of the, one of my favorite conversations to have in a a workshop setting or, or in the setting where I can be really interactive with the office, with the audience as a keynoter is, how many of you, you know, it's a room full of 100 people, let's say, how many of you, when you look back at the course of your career, can identify at least one situation or assignment or project or crisis or whatever it was that you were thrown into to, to lead, and that when you look back on it, you view that as the biggest developmental experience of your life or your career, and usually every hand will go up. Everybody, you know, if they get to a certain level, everybody's got at least one of those kinds of situations or experiences in their life. And so I'll get a few people to talk about, so what was, you know, what was it, Dave, you know, what was it for you? And they said, well, I had to put these two federal agencies together uh, after 9-11 because we had to cooperate quickly on national security issues and it had to work. And it was, oh, that sounds pretty big. Or somebody else will say, you know, I had to, uh, this huge IT implementation and the business was dependent on it working on day one and we had 30 days to pull it together or, you know, whatever. Or we, had a, we had an acquisition in our company and I was in charge of the integration team. And, you know, a lot of value would go out the door if that didn't work well. So, okay, great. So in every one of those situations, it sounds like the what to do was really clear, right? You know, get the agencies to cooperate so you can protect the country, make sure the IT implementation works correctly so our customers uh, get what they need on day one, uh, you know, make the acquisition work so we get the full value of, of whatever we paid for. Yeah, yeah, really clear. Everybody else didn't tell your story. Is that clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now, for anybody who told their story or anybody, the other 97 of you who didn't tell your story, did anybody have anybody besides you every step of the way in that situation saying, now here's how you do the next thing, and here's how you do the next thing, and here's how you do the next thing? And like, no, of course not. Nobody ever gets that. And my point is that's exactly why you look on it as the biggest developmental experience of your career. You were thrown into the deep end of some pool and somebody said swim and figure out what to do. And there was nobody there beside you telling you how to swim. You just had to figure it out. And 
you did, and you grew a ton from that. And the point is, for a lot of leaders, they're holding on to things that they're doing themselves that they need to let go of. Uh, you know, they're they, they're doing the what and the how on a day-to-day basis, and most of the things they're doing no longer require their level of expertise. You know, it does. There's more than one way to do it. The, what really brought that home to me was the actually I think it was the very first person I interviewed for the next level was a retired Navy admiral named George Sterner, and uh, he retired as a three-star in, in charge of Naval Sea Systems Command. But he started out as a submariner, uh, coming out of the Naval Academy, started out as a submariner in nuclear Navy uh, under Hyman Rickover, if that name means anything to you. He's the father of the nuclear Navy and was a notorious taskmaster. So, you know, if you're learning under Rickover, you're really learning stuff, learning the right way to do things, quote-unquote. And Sterner said, the biggest lesson for me of my career was when I went from commanding one nuclear sub to leading a team of officers uh, that inspected 30 subs a year. I said, wow, it sounds really interesting. What was the big lesson? They said, the big lesson is there's more than one way to run a nuclear submarine. And I thought, wow, you know, I was kind of shocked by that as a civilian. You'd think if there's only one way to do anything, it would be nuclear subs. But he said, no, you know, there's within the latitudes within the within the guardrails there are there's more than one way to do it and it occurred to me that if that's true for something as complex and as important as running a nuclear sub uh that's got to be true for just about everything else that anybody's going to do in life you know and we get wedded to our way of how it's the only way to do it well it's not and it's just your version your team might come up with something better or even if it's not better it's good enough and it's the only way that they grow, and it's the only way that you're in a position to do the stuff that only you can do, given the leadership role that you're in. Uh, and that's a that's a great example, and I think it ties into uh, actually the the next one uh, that, that stands out to me. They all I, I I deliberately led with that one, even though it wasn't the first one in the set of three um, that the book is structured around, because I think I, I see a connection from that one into a lot of these other. Um, kind of issues, but the, the next one was this idea of picking up an inside, an outside-in view of the entire organization and letting go of an inside-out view of your function. I think mm-hmm. when you have a, a exactly how to, one best way to do it mentality, it's kind of hard to take that outsider view. But talk a little bit about that outside-in view um, of the entire organization and why it's so sure. important. And probably, yeah, happy to. And probably the best way to, to address that actually is to start with why the inside-out view is there in the first place, right? And what I've heard in the research and seen in the research, experienced myself as an executive, certainly see a lot with with clients, especially high potential clients, you know, that are the fast trackers on the way up, is somewhere early in their career, they got reinforcement for getting their stuff done. And because they are reinforced for getting their stuff done, you know, you like that, and it's, it's this reinforcement loop, and you keep doing that. And you know what? If if I have to step on a few toes to get my stuff done, well, you know, I can do that because, you know, it's it's my stuff, and it's the most important stuff. Well, you, if you reach a certain level in your organization or in your career, that's no longer true anymore. I mean, you might have actually been rewarded for stepping on a few toes and getting some stuff done, but the higher up you go, the more it's about left and right, and the less it's about up and down and pleasing your boss. It's at least as much about collaborating with your peers as it is making your boss happy and you know doing whatever it takes to get your stuff done. So that's the inside-out view, and I always say that's, you know, that's the view that starts with me. It's me and my stuff, and what am I trying to get done? Everybody else can kind of take a hike because I'm going to get my stuff done. And 
to succeed at these higher levels of leadership, it really needs to shift from that inside-out view, it's all about me, to an outside-in view, which it's all about we. You know, what are we trying to do as an organization, and what's my contribution to that? One of the really smart people I interviewed for the Next Level book was uh, the head of HR at Avon Corporation, Lucian Alzieri, and he's just an extremely wise and experienced guy, and um, was in senior positions at PepsiCo for years, and, and that was, of course, a great laboratory. To, to It still is a great laboratory to learn leadership and then moved to Avon, and he said that the way, the way he sums this up, this outside-in versus inside-out, is that at this level, you know, this level of leadership and above, it's a business, it needs to be at least, it needs to be a business-first, function-second kind of mindset. You know, if I understand what we're trying to accomplish in the business, in the entire business and what that picture looks like, then I can reverse engineer back from that and determine, okay, what's the contribution of my team and me to that business level outcome as opposed to starting with, well, you know, whatever we're doing is like really cool stuff and, you know, I hope it connects to the business outcome. Now, start with the business outcome, reverse engineer your way back, and you're going to be much more successful outside in. It's it's amazing how often uh, everything ties back to this idea of beginning with the end in mind, and sometimes that that's the outside perspective. Sometimes, you know, it's it's begin with the end in mind, but it all is sort of that same concept of what is it we're trying to accomplish here and now. Well, you know, how? We, sorry. No, I think you're right. But begin with the end in mind. I think it begs the question: uh, whose end? <laughs> you know. Wow, that's, you know, whose end do we have? Is it mine or is it ours? Oh no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and. and an important an important distinction but yeah our what what's our objective what are we trying to accomplish not what am i trying to accomplish as i move through uh, an organization right, well just one other oh. thing on the on the you know the me to the we the inside out versus outside in i think the last step of that transition is okay moving from me to me from me to we and then from we to they and and what i mean by that is what are they doing out there you know what, or what do they expect out there? Our customers, or what are our competitors doing, or what are people doing in other industries that we can learn from, uh, or even entire other sectors that we can learn from? So you've got to really have your radar turned on, that full outside-in view to scan what they, whoever they are, are doing or may do that impacts what you and the organization are doing. So there's a strategic element, you know, really of the outside-in view as well as the tactical stuff that we've mainly been talking about, you know, within the organization. I know, and that's a great distinction, a great way to describe it, me versus we versus they. Even even if they is not customers, it's not even competitors, it's just other people that we can steal uh, business model innovations from or even kind of creative takes on our own product from. I think especially as we, we move into an overly interconnected, uh, not overly interconnected, but a more increasingly interconnected world, um, it's easier to do, but I think less people probably engage in it, this idea well, of horizon. you and I were talking before we started the recording about innovation and, and your interest in, in innovation, right? And the they scan is, you know, that's where a lot of innovation comes from. I, I had a, an opportunity a few weeks ago to, to go to a, a conference that uh, GE sponsored here in, D, in Washington, D.C., where I live, and it was a conference on innovation, actually, and so the lunchtime speaker was this 
celebrity chef named Jose Andres, who has a, a number of really, really excellent restaurants in D.C. My wife and I are kind of foodies. That's our hobby, and we've been to a lot of Jose's restaurants. So it was a kind of cool thing to, to, to get to hear him speak. And he started out his session uh, during lunch at this conference with a video, and it was a, it was a, on a screen above the stage, and it was just a beautiful video. He's doing it was just his hands working with really really small fine pieces of food, really colorful things, and doing things to the food, you know, cooking it, boiling it down, heating it up, whatever, and cutting it arraying it, and you couldn't really tell where he was going with all this until the very end. Everything that he had been doing ended up in a, a bowl, and it looked like a beautiful spring bouquet of flowers, but it was all food. And he said, so the video's over. He said, so let me tell you where that inspiration, where, where that came from, what the inspiration was for what I was doing in the video. He said, I had spent prior to that a week with Dale Chaluli, who is a an artistic glass blower. He's, his Chaluli's stuff is in all the you know a lot of the great museums in this country and around the world have Dale Chaluli uh, glass blown sculptures, basically, you know, in in their in their art collections. And so Jose spent a week with him blowing glass, like literally blowing glass. This guy's a chef, and he spent a week blowing glass. But he said, "I just did that because I wanted." Perspectives that I wasn't going to get in the kitchen, <laughs> and I just man, that's like so cool, you know. How, you know, who would expect a chef to hang out with a glass blower to get ideas on food preparation and presentation? But I think it's it's, it's a total outside in kind of example. Yeah, no, absolutely, you're exactly right. And um, I want to real quick, I kind of want to transition to the the last one that stood out to me, and again, it stems from this idea what to do versus how to do. And that's the idea that if you're continuously telling people how to do things, you never have any time for renewal of energy and and, uh, a chance to kind of step back. And that's actually one of the things you you lead off with on the personal presence idea is -hmm. pick up regular renewal and let go of running flat out until you crash. And talk about why this idea of renewal is so important. Oh, my gosh. That's uh, that's like we could go another couple of hours on that one, right? And it's probably it's a good one to end with if, if we're only going to talk about three of them. Um, so pick up regular renewal of your energy and perspective. Let go of running flat out until you crash. Uh, here's the data on that. We, we've got a, a 360 uh, feedback instrument that's based on 72 behaviors related to the next level, eight behaviors for each of those nine pick up and let go distinctions, so eight of the behaviors out of the 72 are on regular renewal versus running flat out. We've run the 360 now with about 1,000 people, and then we also have a self-assessment uh, based. It's 27 of those 72 items, those 72 leadership behaviors that we've run. And you, people listening can go to EvelynGroup.com website and take it for free. Uh, there's a button on the homepage of the website that you can do that if you're interested. Uh, long story short, out of several thousand self-assessments, either in a 360 or just a straight self-assessment, as well as assessments from colleagues. The lowest rated item out of 72 items is paces himself or herself, paces myself by building in regular breaks from work. Okay? And it's actually what's interesting over the five years or so that we've been running these surveys, that performance on that item gets lower every year, the pacing themselves item. Uh, a related item is regularly takes time to step back to define or redefine what needs to be done. That's a regular renewal of perspective kind of behavior. 
leaves time in one's schedule for unexpected problems or issues, because one thing that you can expect is there are always going to be unexpected problems or issues. You know, if there are any engineers listening, they're probably familiar with the term a tightly coupled system. You know, like in a mechanical system, a tightly coupled system, if something goes wrong in the system, then there's a chain reaction effect and everything else fails because that one key component failed. And so the question I like to ask is, is your, is your calendar a tightly coupled system? Is it so jam-packed with stuff that if something significant blows up, that everything else around it blows up because you just don't have any margin? And I... <laughs> Here's the point. I mean, how can you perform at your best if you don't have any space to step back and define or redefine what needs to be done? How can you perform at your best um, if you are always running it at the red line and don't give yourself a chance to recharge or renew or just plain old chill out? You know, you, you can't. Nobody can do that. You can't always be operating at peak performance. You've got to give yourself some breaks and some cycle time. And and the pacing and the breaks, you know, a break doesn't have to be, although it's nice, it doesn't have to be a two-week vacation. It doesn't have to be even a two-day weekend, although that's even better, you know, sometimes on a two-week vacation. It can be 10 minutes, you know. It can be 10 minutes to just... Take some, take a breath. Literally, like take a few deep breaths and clear your head. All the research that's coming out now on neurobiology tells us that, you know, the breathing it literally clears out the chemicals in the brain that cause you to not be able to think at peak performance or to carry over the stress from the last conversation you had. Some breathing, some stretching, uh, just to get yourself ready for the next thing, to give yourself an opportunity to visualize, okay, what's coming up next? What am I trying to do in that presentation, that meeting, that conversation? If I'm wildly successful, what happens at the end of that conversation? Another deep breath. Second big question, how do I need to show up to make that outcome likely? You know, and if you're running, you know, if, if one meeting ends at 12.59 and your next meeting starts at 1 p.m. and you're running late from the 12.59 meeting, how do you have time to even show up? I mean, I like to ask people, you know, how many of you actually stop to think, to ask yourself those questions? The, the, what am I trying to do and how do I need to show up to do it? Interesting. A lot of people don't. Most people don't, actually. How many of you, and then the next question, how many of you show up for meetings like not really knowing why you're in the meeting or what your game plan is, and people will kind of be sheepish about that, but usually everybody says, yeah, you know, that happens. I said, so do you find, what do you say then? You know, yeah, I'll just kind of wing it. <laughs> you ever say that to yourself? I'm just going to kind of wing it. Uh, yeah. I said, do you really think that winging it is a great success strategy? You know, probably not. Um, we just are running, running ourselves so hard, and the technology just enables that. And you know, the, and the expectations that we either put on ourselves or that others put on us around instant responsiveness, because my iPhone just buzzed, or if I'm using a BlackBerry, it just rang, or whatever. Really, I mean, who, who said that that had to be the case? I, we have a, a group coaching program that we've run for four or five years now, uh, for. 16, it's a cohort-based program, 16 high potentials at a time, and we use that 360 I was talking about, and one of my uh, participants, a uh, mid-level manager in that program, 
had really low scores from her team on paces herself at building in breaks from work. And I talked with her about it in the coaching session that we had one-on-one to determine, you know, what her developmental focus was going to be. And, you know, so Joyce, I mean, these are some pretty, these are some of the lowest scores I've ever seen on pacing yourself. And and uh, what do you think about that? Ah, you know, it doesn't really matter because, you know, I'm I'm married, my husband and I, we don't have any kids, you know, our kids have left home and he doesn't care. I, I like to work all weekend and I send emails out all weekend and blah, blah, blah. It's great. You know, it's just, I just love it. I love it. You know, it's just, so, you know, t- pacing myself, building in breaks, not really an issue. And I said, you know, Joyce, maybe your people need a break from you. <laughs> you, know, just, you know, just, and she'd never thought about it that way. But, you know, because she's the manager and she's firing off emails all Saturday night long in the, in the Sunday morning, you know, they think, well, she's doing it. i got to do it, too. And, you know, there's a, another example of a tightly coupled system. There's just this terrible ripple effect, and everybody ends up performing below grade, you know, because they don't have any time to recycle and push the reset button. It's uh, we got to oh, do something about that in, in our country, in our world. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, how how often do you hear, it's almost cliche to talk about how meetings are a waste of time, but you, you start to wonder if the real reason is that everybody's running from meeting to meeting without actually taking the time to figure out what are we supposed to do in this other meeting that I'm about to head into. Totally. And as a result, we, we waste the time and it builds. And the other thing I thought of when you were talking about the, the iPhone and the BlackBerry thing, I, I was thinking about one of the, the sort of strategic changes I made in my own life this, uh, you know, at the, at the new year. I don't want to call it a resolution because it wasn't. It's just a chance to kind of reflect. But I turned the vibrating function off on my iPhone. So, you know, there, you flip the switch and it either rings or it doesn't do anything whenever you get a text, uh, email, phone call, whatever. And it's the single most relaxing thing I've done for my work life. Uh, That's really smart. The the year. It's really smart. So, I'll, a lot of times I'll ask people in, in those kinds of settings, um, the workshops or the keynotes or the group coachings or whatever, you know, how many emails do you get a day? And the standard answer these these days seems to be about 250. Yeah, I probably get about 250 emails a day. And so, okay, so what does your device do when an email comes in? And most people have turned off the sound function because, you know, that would be just like annoying all day long for everybody. But most of them still have it set to vibrate. And I say, so what do you do when it vibrates? And sometimes people will literally, like, scrunch up their shoulders and, you know, like they're, they're – Ace will contract when I ask them that question. It's like they have a physical reaction to it. And and I say, yeah, you absolutely have a physical reaction. You know, you get a little shot of dopamine every time that thing goes off. And so how many emails are you getting a day? 250. So every time that happens, 250 times a day, you're getting that little shot, you know, that little neurochemical shot. What do you figure the impact of that is on your clarity of thought? <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. not too good. Um, well, and I, you know, as you start to read the uh, the neuroscience on the, this idea that multitasking may not actually be possible, it's really just task, task switching, and you lose something, even if it's a couple milliseconds, you lose something in the transition. Now, compound that with the idea that every time your uh, your phone vibrates, even if you don't check it, the physical idea that okay, there is a new email message, just processing that thought interrupts whatever else you were doing, and so. Um, with the exception of, you know, when my, uh, I had it for about a week leading up to the birth of my, uh, my son, I had it on vibrate again and I yeah, automatically sure. noticed a, a difference in stress level, you know, cause I was on high alert, but exactly. um, I was, I was very excited for once he was born and I could take the vibrate function back <laughs> off. And just that was the be best part of the birth, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. no, but, uh, yeah, you know, that's been, that's been one of the benefits to my work life. You know, I'm, I might not be getting as much sleep, but at least I have the vibrate off on my phone again. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so, well, I, it's a it's a fantastic book about um, things that ex- executives need to either either stop doing or start doing. I love the way that it's structured. Um, I want to transition a little bit uh, into talking about what what you're reading. I think this is something leaders definitely need to read. But I want to know from from the coach and the guy who wrote what leaders need to read. Uh, what are you reading right now? What am I reading? So here's the challenge with me: is I, I'm usually reading so many things at once that uh, I'm, I'm opening up my Kindle app as we speak, so, so I can I can tell you what I'm reading because just about everything I'm reading now is on Kindle. So I'm reading How uh, by Dove Seidman, uh, which his whole premise is in an age where there's total transparency and all kinds of social media and everything else, how we do things is at some level more important than what we do because the what can be commoditized, but the how is is um, unique to each of us, and that can either work for you or against you. Um, for fun, I'm reading Born Standing Up by Steve Martin, which I find is really good. It's, oh, I I, uh, I, well, I listened to it on, on CD about a year ago or so. Oh, yeah? It's actually fantastic. Oh, he's awesome. So. Yeah. He has a line in there that I steal all the time because he talks about how he wanted to go in show business, so he thought about getting a uh, a PhD because being a professor is, after all, just a form of show business. And I steal that line all the time when I talk about <laughs> my own life. Yeah, that's good. Uh, reading Lynchpin by Seth Godin. I'm almost done with that. And uh, I'm about halfway through Buddha's Brain, uh, which is about um, kind of the intersection between uh, – well, basically, how do you reshape your brain, and what what's the neuroscience behind that? So those are those are four that I'm reading, and I, I I'll be honest, I probably finish about 25% of the books that I start, but <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll read about half of it and do a heavy scan on the other half, unless it's so compelling that I I can't help but finish it. You know, the way that a lot of them are structured now, they're they're structured exactly that in the first uh, couple of chapters you get the idea and then the rest is just data and stories that support it and yeah. actually I, I was telling in the the last guest we had on the podcast i was talking about how the way that i decide what books get a, just a review on the website versus what books get featured in the podcast is if i stay interested all the way to the end of the book uh, then it definitely gets on the podcast eventually because it's you know there's something there on every page and so it's worth talking about and, and that's the case for what it's worth that's the case with the next level you have to get okay. through those three yeah. stages and really understand it on those three different building block levels, so it does that. Um, so, and and I, I want to ask you another kind of personal question. The, the book is in its its second edition now. It's been out for a while, and I know you're uh, you're involved in in both group and individual coaching and keynotes. But what's next for you? What should we see uh, project wise on the horizon from Scott Evelyn? Well, yeah, project wise, uh, probably a couple of things. One that I'm in the beginnings of now. I, beginnings, meaning it's been working on it fairly actively for most of the last year. I'm really trying to work on ways to share the the content and, and the opportunities to work with the stuff on the next level uh, in virtual settings uh, where it doesn't necessarily, you know, somewhere between reading the book and having me show up to coach you or do a speech or, or whatever. Uh, so we're, we've offered that self-assessment that I that I mentioned earlier. Um, we've got a version of that uh, where it rolls into a personal leadership development plan that includes uh, video coaching sessions uh, for me on your five lowest assessed behaviors and a, a really uh, 
pretty straightforward, simple way to pursue a development plan for your called a leadership success plan uh, for yourself as a result of how you assess yourself on the behaviors. We've got a discussion guide now for the next level, so and it's you know the facilitator training for that is read the page that says for if you were the facilitator you know read that page and follow those those suggestions and you should be good to go. And a lot of co- a lot of companies and organizations are using the discussion guide now, which I'm really excited about. Um, so you know just doing different things where we can deliver it to reach more people and have hopefully have more people you know benefit uh, from from the next level content. So that's one thing, and then. I'm really passionate about this whole idea of how do you get stuff done and still have a life. Uh, you know, we were talking there at the end about pacing yourself and so forth and the regular renewal. And I know you're working on a book proposal. Uh, I am to uh, a book proposal uh, to present a book that is organized around a model that's in the next level called the Life GPS, which in, in our uh, case stands for goals planning system rather than global positioning system and um, turns on three questions. How are you when you're at your best? Uh, What are the routines that you either have in your life or think you need to have in your life to make it more likely that you show up at your your best more often than not? And what outcomes would you hope or expect to see in the three big arenas of life, your life at home, your life at work, and your life in the community if you were showing up at your best consistently? And capturing all that on a sheet of paper. It's a, a tool that I've used with my clients for really the entire time that I've been coaching. My wife and I developed it 15 or 16 years ago. And uh, building that out uh, kind of as a as a book uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully a resource and co- combination of thought provoker and, and practical application. I'm really big into applied science more than pure science. Um, you know, a book that really has practical application for folks as they think about, you know, how do I, as David Byrne said in The Talking Heads, how do I work this? Uh, you know, is, is this my beautiful life or is this my, you know, what, what was that song, uh, Days Gone By? I think it was by The Talking Yeah, Heads. yeah, this is yeah. this is not my beautiful yeah, life. Yeah, this is not my beautiful life. You know, how do, how, do I, how do I work this, you know? And that's what I'm working on now is, kind of putting the pieces of that book proposal together. And so that'll be the, the next big project over the next couple of years while I'm still out coaching around next level stuff, work, working on that book. We'll definitely be looking for that book uh, when it comes out as well. In the meantime, we want to encourage listeners to check out the next level, figure out what is a leader you need to pick up uh, and what you need to put down in order to lead your team better and, and really to build your team to grow so that they can come to the next level uh, as well. So we encourage readers to check that book out. We'll obviously have a link on our show notes, et cetera. Scott, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Oh, Dave, thanks for having me. I really had a fun conversation with you. Thanks. 